had your fair share of headphones on too. Yeah, they're never quite right for the cello. It's always like, kind of, you got to learn to jimmy it over your ear and then have like the cello by your ear and not knock ah. it around and you know it's not it's not the most comfortable thing. why i need a one ear one why why is that well the, so the cello comes right ah, by your so it's actually ear. the physical part of yeah so it's got to be out of the way because it's like really okay. up against your left ear yeah, yeah. I never thought of that before. Well, you've seen me kind of do it. Yeah, all. well, you always do the the one headphone, but yeah. that's that's kind of just a recording trick as well, yeah. right? So you're multitasking. You're <laughs> getting the headphones out of the way of the cello and also not hearing the natural sound. Exactly. Because when I'm singing vocals, I often do, one do the, yeah. the one ear because you're mm. hearing yourself in the natural reverberation mm. of yourself yeah. in the room is different than how you hear yourself. Okay, question from the non-musician. <laughs> what are you, are you hearing the rest of the song in the headphones and you're singing along to that music? Yes. Like, okay. Yeah. So, so you need it because or else you're just playing loose you're, you're into nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have it covering both ears, you can't hear yourself. Gotcha. Yeah. Ah, they do need to create single-sided they headphones. Do, they do. They definitely have. Yeah. Some. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> just invented it. <laughs> An eye patch, yeah. and then yeah, we'll do all the unilateral things. <laughs> so we are here with our good friend Blanche. Woo! How are you today, Blanche Israel? <laughs> I'm. It, you're in the studio of Mike and Kristen. Hot Jupiter sounds. Ooh. I'm fantastic. It's a gorgeous day. It's so hot. Blanche arrived and I was sunbathing in the backyard. I don't usually <sighs> do that or like I'm a bit more prepared when we have podcast guests over, but and I'm wearing we're a, all naked. I'm, yeah. Wearing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing a tank top, which I don't wear unless I'm in foreign countries. So uh, you're in luck if uh, to get to see me in this right? illustrious right. tank top that I've worn on our adventures around the world for the it's last doing, dozen years. It's doing wonders for my wanderlust. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> that was the goal of it. So Blanche, you're a, a cello player. You are a musician. You've been involved in the music industry for a long time now. What tell us your whole story, start to finish in wow. one, one breath? <laughs> Way to kick things off. Just you go for it. Tell us everything you know. There's these thirty six questions to fall in love. Have you ever heard of them? I have. Yeah. So one of them is like, tell your life story in four minutes. So hard to do. Ooh, I bet. Um, but as far as uh, wow, music and career, um, I grew up playing music from a young age. I'm from Montreal and I was lucky to, you know, be in lessons. And my mom is a folk musician. And when I was five, she was like, I'm going to learn to play the fiddle in addition to, you know, guitar and piano and singing that she was doing. So I was like, I want to do that too. And then we kind of did it together and my sister as well. And so it was a kind of family affair. And, um, from there, you know, I I eventually discovered the cello at music camp and I like did not let my mom hear the end of it for like a whole year until it was like, okay, fine, we'll let you do it. We'll let you try this weird and expensive uh. instrument. Um, and so, yeah, it's like growing up, I th I'm thinking about this a lot because I have a new baby. It's like yeah. you you get to this point when you're around puberty where you're like, is this my thing or is this my parents' thing? 
And I had a real moment with that. And then I was like, no, it's definitely my thing. I just had always this real strong connection with the cello. Um, it's a wonderful instrument that's like a mother's voice when you're in the womb. I thought about it a lot when I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And it's just soothing and universally liked for that. And it's an amazing instrument. Very satisfying to play and challenging and unique. Um, so I, I went into music. I studied music in Sejep, which is like an additional step of school that we have before university in Quebec. And then I, uh, I actually went into arts management after that. Another crisis of, ide of identity, but mm. I decided, you know, that I was not going to do the professional musician thing. And I was going to be behind the scenes and making decisions. And, you know, it was kind of my, uh, went with my personality. But then music chased me down <laughs> and it was in the strangest of circumstances after university, I moved to Germany, um, because my partner at the time, Ian McNeil, shout out, um, <laughs> went to uh, become an opera singer in Germany. And I was just going to be uh, a freelance uh, translator and arts consultant in whatever capacity I could. And when I was there, uh, a Canadian musician, um, wow, he would hate it if I called him, if he knew I called him that, an indigenous musician by the name of Jeremy Dutcher, uh, reached out to me out of the blue and was like, hey, do you want to be my cellist? I have a record coming out. And that record went on to win the Players Prize and, the, and a Juno and just kind of take him and me and a lot of people around the world touring. And yeah, I just, I, I, I just didn't think that that would be something that would be part of my career. And then it was. And so I ended up with this, this mix of, you know, uh, management and consulting and uh, just a mixed bag of freelance work, but then also touring. And I love the balance of the two. And um, yeah, I'll leave that. How there. did, how did Jeremy come across you? <laughs> so I used to work for the National Youth Orchestra of Canada, um, which, yeah, started me on, on kind of touring and organizing and event planning and stuff. And um, at the time, it was 2017, Canada 150, quote, unquote. And um, Jeremy was one of the people that the National Youth Orchestra wanted to approach to work with, to basically work with an Indigenous artist for this uh, for this anniversary. I, I've learned a lot since then about, like, you know, settler and Indigenous relationships and what that really represented, you know. But anyway... I was just doing my job and my job was to reach out to indigenous artists. So we didn't end up working with um, Jeremy, but we did uh, connect on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> so um, once I was in Germany, I had stepped back from my full-time work um, and I kind of was like soul searching and also had some free time. And so I was posting cello videos on Facebook, which oh, I don't yeah. really do often, but I was doing that like, pretty consistently and right at that time he was looking for a cellist to come on tour with him and 
it was very faded. It was yeah, it feels very divine. Uh, yes, it, it didn't make any sense at all. And for the first year that I worked with him, I was like, he's going to figure out that I'm not the real deal. He's going to figure out that I'm just like not a real musician. And <laughs> little imposter syndrome there. Big time. And it would like destroy me regularly. Like after performances, mm. I would just crash and be like, oh my God. And it was about, it was, it was a, a reckoning with like, my classical training, you know, to be like, oh my God, I am not worthy of this. And, you know, and eventually I realized uh, there's no stamp of approval that you need to have to be a musician. You just need to have something to contribute, um, which I believe most people do. I find as a musician and who've played with other musicians, multiple times and have people play with me and on recordings, the biggest thing by far is not talent. Like talent is mm. certainly important, but being a good person, you show up on time, you're easy to work with, your personalities are compatible Big time. and you can just like they say, shoot the shit with them, you know, like you just get along well. Like yeah. I would much rather have that person play with me than someone who is a virtuoso, but an asshole. hundred <laughs> percent. And I, I was told this a lot of times by various people in the early years, in the early months, I should say, of working with Jeremy, where I was like, I don't understand why I'm here. <laughs> and people would be like, 97% of touring is like, can you, can you hang? Yeah. <laughs> mm. The, the music is a small, small part of it. And if you can't get along, like, you know, like you're you're here for a reason, and I was like, okay, now, I I mean, it's been a big journey, but now I'm like, I'm a rad cellist, like I'm awesome. I I think I I think I'm great. Well, yeah, I was gonna say you're downplaying your abilities because you are you in my eyes you're virtuoso for sure. Oh yeah, and a good person. You're like the the unicorn musician. <laughs> and we've got you here today. I remember the first time meeting you Blanche I don't know if you remember this but I, I was coming home from work one day and you were here recording I think a song for Mike or on mm. his album or maybe it was one that you were working on but yeah you were in our living room and I, I come in and you're in the midst of this recording and I was t I text my dad and I was like there's a beautiful woman playing cello in my living room right now. <laughs> like you just, it was like this magical entrance to come home to after work. So I second on the unicorn. <laughs> one thing that's interesting about being a musician is there's, there's so many different ways to approach a career as a musician. Mm. And myself, and I guess, I guess Jeremy would be the same. Like we're writing songs and creating these individual uh, things from, from our minds that we try to put out there. And then people like you come mm. and add on top of that. Like you're, you're not necessarily at home writing, Hey, mm. I want to write this cello album or whatever. You learned how to be an awesome cello player and can sit in and then like, 10 seconds come up with a beautiful mm. line that goes <laughs> along with something that uh, someone like myself has created. And there are different approaches for sure. Like I never, I never studied music. I don't understand theory at all. 
And you, on the other hand, know that more or less inside and out, mm. I guess. Um, but it, it's interesting that in the same world, it can be approached in multiple different yeah. ways. Well, in classical music, there's been a divorcing of uh, the people who create and the people who perform. And uh, for better or for worse, I was I, I came up in a classical training. I felt playing with Jeremy and just like like post classical training, like I really had to undo a lot of the shackles. And he, Jeremy, and I have had this conversation because he has classical training as well um, as an opera singer. Like, there's a lot to unpack and and unload a lot of baggage that comes with classical training. So you get all these skills but you also I remember in school I had a course I've always loved to play by ear um and it's I've had opportunities to like hone that skill but but I was naturally as a kid that was what I gravitated towards um but in school we had this uh this class I don't know what it was called anyways a, a bunch of us string players would be in a circle and a lot of it was improvising like it was uh, sight reading really, really well and sight reading while counting out loud and all kinds of difficult things. But then at the end, we would always have a period of like just improvising. And there was myself and my friend who was a klezmer musician. We're just like, ooh, we love this part of the class, the funnest part. But there were a couple of people and one in particular who just would refuse to even make a note. Mm. And it was like, there's like six people here. And it doesn't matter if it's a wrong note. It's mm. a we're in a classroom, like it's the end of the day. Just play, just utter something from your from your instrument. And she just couldn't and wouldn't. And so it really, really like runs deep. Of like, I'm not allowed to decide. I am comfortable with a composer deciding for me, and and I'm gonna render it perfectly and so I love to jam and I love to create but I'm much more comfortable um doing that within like a structure and I I think that's cool and I enjoy it a lot but I uh I admire people who just can create and then you know I don't know I it, it, it you're right it's like different types of people are needed and 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 you come at it for different reasons and from different directions. And that's certainly not supposed to be taken as like one thing is better than the other. Anything yeah, no. just a, just an observation more mm -hmm. than anything. And I when I see like an orchestra play or people who play the, the the way you do, that's that's almost like a completely different thing to me because I whatever I pick up a guitar and just start mm -hmm. humming and come up with things completely by ear and when I see the technicality involved in an orchestral piece or something that's like mm -hmm. a whole different language to me altogether in a in an impressive yeah. way if you look at an orchestra it's like and, and then you look at a music producer today like a composer was using the orchestra in the same way, except that they needed, you know, 60 or 100 or 150 people to, like, render the piece. So it was a really, really different process. Now, as a music producer, you can just sit down and try different sounds and 
change them and, you know, find your own way with it and trial and error and stuff like that. Um, but it, it, like, it, it is weird. And this is part of the reason that I stepped away from my path towards being a classical musician. I was like, I'm, I just feel like I'm just a pawn in this creative process. And I want to have artistic input, which I actually think in an orchestra setting comes from like management. It's weird. It's it's a unique perspective, though, that we haven't really talked about on the podcast yet in in that I imagine most of the general public, when they think of an artist, it is about this free flowing, mm. open, intuitive creativity. And for the most part, that may or may not be true, um, but something I think we can all embody to some extent, but also perfecting something and the technical aspect of it and training in that way, being in unison, being disciplined in a different way is also being an artist, but we just don't usually imagine it in that way. Yeah. I think it's being a craftsman Mm. and then like technique is only as good as what you then do with it. It's amazing to have uh, technique and theory and whatever behind it to such a, point and such an extent that you can then be free and create and that's where that's what I'm so grateful for when I think about my classical training is that now I can kind of shapeshift and be like a chameleon in so many different contexts and and just lend the what's needed from the cello to the situation well working with you in so many uh different times i would like um oh can you try this and then you're like oh staccato or whatever and then you like you i think she translates it into actual words (laughs) (laughs) but you have like i think a lot of people who probably play cello couldn't do that but you have that artistic and creative Mm -hmm. muscle that you're able to flex because when you've came here to record it's just always seems to be a seamless process just our ideas kind of bounce back and forth and it's just like skipping past some steps like you could be like hey i want this and talk to a composer and have the composer kind of render it and then write it out and then send that to someone to read and you know and that that's a process that people do like get things get string arrangements written out and whatever um i would actually say that like Maybe it's just the cellists I know, but I feel like cellists in particular, because we're at the base of the string range, but not like a double bass, which wouldn't be able to play all uh, all the way up the range. We can kind of like uh, play a full string ar- arrangement. Translation, we can play like four parts and and sound like a violin or sound like yeah. the, a bass or whatever. And so because of that, a lot of cellists that I know are quite creative like with string arrangements compared, I feel to like violinists or, or bassists or whatever. But you're better. <laughs> cellists are the best. Are it's all I'm saying. One. Yeah, cellists forever. The rarest of bumper stickers. <laughs> <laughs> when you first started playing, did you purchase a, a cello right away, or did you kind of try one on for size? I was 
fortunate growing up that my parents like this was super important to them. Music is a is super super important part of their their life, and um, my my grandparents as well on my mom's side uh, valued it a lot, and so. Um, yeah, like I was fortunate to have, like what you do when you're a kid is you have a, you don't have a full size, you have like a little, I, I started on a three quarter cause I'm a pretty tall gal, but I was like nine and I was on a three quarter size cello and, mm-hmm. um, my cello teacher's son was three and he had like a, like a one eighth size cello. And I was like, how many cellos is he going to buy before he's a grown up? <laughs> um, but, but yeah, uh, having access to to instruments it's like I think about it here because now I've moved to Nova Scotia it's like I feel like I I know by name all the cellists that are here (laughs) like there Mm -hmm. are really not that many and there's less of a uh, like availability of even like teachers and just instruments and everything Mm -hmm. um than there is in Montreal um I think of the, about this story that I heard from like Don Leahy. Um, is that the right name? Uh, Natalie Natalie McMaster's husband. D- Danelle, I think, isn't it Danelle? Oh, I don't know. Dan, Dan, I don't. Jeez. <laughs> Anyways, um, I know Natalie they have McMaster's a lot of kids. Husband. Yeah. Um, he was saying that like growing up in Cape Breton, they like didn't have a piano, but there was a piano on order and it was going to come and like in preparation for the piano coming, someone had made a cardboard piano and everyone was like practicing on the cardboard piano, obviously with no sound and just, Mm. just like with the keys. And so by the time the piano showed up, they were like ready to rumble. Half of them (laughs) played piano. (laughs) So yeah. Great story. Yeah. And, and referencing Natalie McMaster's husband actually is a good segue to a question I wanted to ask you Mm. about being Jeremy Dutcher's cellist. (laughs) And, and, I, I, I don't even really know how to frame the question, but yeah. that I, I think even making that statement kind of suggests what I'm getting yeah. at no, in yeah. like, how, does that, how does that feel as part of your, your job yeah. title at times? Jeremy actually worked with like the most famous cellist in the world, probably Yo-Yo Ma mm-hmm. um, on a record recently. And and it was very destabilizing. And <laughs> Yo-Yo Ma actually asked Jeremy, like, is your cellist okay? Like, you know, and Jeremy makes jokes all the time, like, he's no Blanche, but, you know, he'll have <laughs> to do in a pinch. Um, but uh, I I don't I don't have an issue with it. I think it's just the kind of artist that I am. It's like, I really, it's the driving force for me in playing cello and the reason that I did continue past puberty was always playing with others and always um you know things like orchestra and music camp that I was going to for years um and then like you know being able to play with friends being able to jam um being able to tour and have a good time with people it's like if I didn't have the time of my life with Jeremy I probably wouldn't be doing it it's not because I want to be a session musician at all costs and a touring musician at all costs. It's the relationships and the exchange that I value more than anything. So um, people ask me all the time if I, if I have my own stuff out and it's, it's hard to explain, but I just like playing that role more. Mm-hmm. Today's episode is sponsored by Aaron Bulger Photography. 
Erin has considered photography a portal to her memories since she started sifting through old albums as a child on her parents' living room floor. Erin believes that when you look back on your pictures decades from now, you should be hit in the face with a rush of emotion to instantly be transported back in time and feel everything again. Her images create that kind of magic. She recognizes that no two couples are ever the same and refuses to approach any session in a robotic way. She cares about your memories as fiercely as if they were her own. We have had the honor of working with Erin on a number of occasions and can't express our love and gratitude for both her work and how she shows up to deliver her product. Follow Erin at Erin Bulger on Instagram. I remember feeling like, because I worked as... Um, well, the chief of staff for one of our cabinet ministers for mm. a long time, which is essentially a glorified assistant. Like I'm giving mm. it this fancy job title, but I liked doing things for him. Like I, I liked having clear direction and roles and responsibilities and executed yeah. it well. And I never felt like I had to be the face and voice or in the leadership role all the time. There are aspects of my life that mm -hmm. I do that as do you. Even being a mother, like you're in the driver's seat here. You don't need to be that in every scenario. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I know often in the entertainment industry, especially like you're also embodying, you're an entertainer. Mm -hmm. Like there's a certain feeling about that. So and, and Mike, maybe you have you're the front man. So people will often, you know, look to you as the leader in that role or relationship of people. Yeah, I never set out to be a front man, which is mm. kind of strange. I kind of just fell into it because all the other bands I was in at the before then fell apart. <laughs> and it was basically, well, I guess I have to learn to sing and be the front person in a band. So I never, like, I, I do enjoy it. And, but I, I like just singing harmonies and playing guitar just as much. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess I do, like, when when you have a good attentive audience and you can engage with them and have that back and forth like that is a pretty pretty amazing thing to feel but i grew up in the bands i was playing i was just playing guitar and eventually singing harmonies and i was completely happy doing that it was it was more it kind of felt more as a I guess I have to do this now because I want to keep playing music and this is my only option. And I didn't really love it for a while. Like I've definitely felt the imposter syndrome. Like what the hell am I doing up here trying mm -hmm. to sing and entertain people? And it took mm -hmm. a, a long time to, to feel comfortable. And I didn't, I ne never saw myself as a singer either. Right. And I guess maybe now as some, a dozen years into singing or so, I feel pretty confident saying I'm a singer and think that most people recognize me as a singer before anything else. But in my own eyes, I've always been just doing it because it was a necessity. Mm. Yeah, I, um, there's a, there's a comfort in not being in the driver's seat because then you can just point from the passenger seat and be like you should do this yeah. <laughs> you know um i think that that uh well i've seen jeremy be just in some really uh the, so, some challenging situations like where he needs to decide what he's about 
Um, and sometimes can only do that after the fact. Like, and it's hard. Um, it's yeah. super, super hard. I think today's industry um, pushes people to be artists that they aren't necessarily like and to fall into i don't know like being like big on tiktok for example um that's fine for some people and it's really really not natural for others and so like i'm i just it's it's a it's a joy and a luxury to to be able to like hop onto someone's fabulous moving train i i i i don't i i have a lot like you said i have a lot of areas in my life like i own my own business and have since 2015 um i have to run my own show in that sense and um i i i've been you know like i've been <laughs> I've been alone a lot, but not like in a pathetic way, but just, not like, oh, poor me, I've been alone, but just I choose to like run my own show in that sense as well. Like yeah. I'm not, I'm not, uh, anyways, <laughs> moving on. I, and then, yeah, I have, I have a kid now and, um, I'm a single mom and, it's uh I, I i enjoy that like role of ma- making decisions in those areas and in music there's something really lovely and fun about just going along with other cool people's ideas and creations i imagine being a parent especially a new parent kind of makes you reflect on a lot of things about yourself because you're now passing along this wisdom and these ideas, beliefs, identities, all of these questions would Mm. come up. Is there any impact you find on your creative self because of that? Yeah. Let me meanderingly respond to this Mm -hmm. because I feel like that I'm I'm a Gemini and sometimes the answer just comes out of like Me actually too. talking aloud. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry everyone. But, you know, very so my baby is two and a half months. Very, very early on, like when she was days old, um, I was going through some difficult stuff and I remember there was a day where I just couldn't put her down. I was just I needed to hold her all day long and just have her close. And at one point I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and I was like, oh my God, I'm like holding my inner child right now. Mm-hmm. That's why I can't put her down. I need to be held and I'm I'm doing it via this physical manifestation of like, I mean, when your baby is that small, it just feels like it's just an extension of you. So uh, a lot of things just become a lot clearer to you when you have a physical manifestation of your inner child to look at and hold and parent and care for and make decisions for. Um, And it becomes impossible to ignore your needs anymore. Mm. You just have to face that and be like, if it's not good enough for 
my baby, it's not good enough for me, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if it's really had, like, I'm still in the whirlwind of, of like, new parenting. But, okay, here's what I would say about it on a creative level. It's just, like, um, giving birth is so ridiculous. Like, it's so badass and it's like you feel like you just did this thing that like obviously so many people have done it but you feel like okay I just entered a club of people who've done the most insane thing a body can do yes um so then you're like freer yeah on stage it's just you know and it's like it's just a joy I I feel like that's something that I worked gradually towards in the last three, four years with Jeremy um, of just freeing myself from, like I said earlier, like that baggage, that classical music baggage. But, but now it's like we did, we just did a show last week where we sat down, no plan, no set list, like not much rehearsal, a sound check before, you know, and we just went for it. And I loved that. I just don't, get nervous anymore because it's just fun like so I feel like I've gradually healed this like classical music sized wound that I had when I started working <laughs> with him I think that's a <laughs> very beautiful experience for an audience to witness as mm-hmm. well I imagine they too can feel that freedom and peace that you have found mm-hmm. in I think it's natural to be nervous when you're entertaining in front of a big crowd, of course, but finding that just peace and joy with the art is difficult enough to do alone in a practice or, you know, in your studio, much less sharing that with an audience. So it's kind of that magical moment for everyone. Some people love recording more and some people love performing live more. I've always been a live person because it's like uh, you just get to to like chuck the mistakes behind you. It's just like they're part of it. And um, so if you're a perfectionist, you probably gravitate towards recording. But like I just love the uniqueness of the moment and the just liveness of the moment. So you just um, like uh, you get to you, you get to just forgive yourself except if it's then like televised or something and you're like, uh, oh god <laughs> what but yeah it's, what do you feel when you're on stage um so uh i feel just when i'm on stage with jeremy because i do think it's an experience that i have with with jeremy and that we've cultivated together it's just like a curiosity and a like how am I how am I just gonna delight, surprise and delight Jeremy right now? <laughs> and by extension, the audience, because I, I believe the audience, whether they're um, you know, like well versed in jazz theory or they're just walking in off the street and they've never heard a note of music before, they feel that 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 freshness and that exchange and um it feels like a communion with uh, the people on stage and with the with the audience. Um, and more and more since I've uh, left the 
classical music world. Not that I've left it. I, I still do that stuff. But I, I feel like it really isn't. This is the thing. I don't get nervous because I don't feel like it's me. It's, a, it's not about me. It's we're all doing this thing together. Like without the audience, this would not mm-hmm. be a performance. So every person is bringing whatever they came with that day. And sometimes there's just this real alchemy that happens that's unbelievable and unparalleled. So, um, yeah, I just feel like let's play in the sandbox together and see what we make. And um, it's we we have like references. We have it's a it's a manifestation of our our friendship. Um, so when we're when we're like having fun together we're having fun on stage when we're uh at odds it can be super weird on stage and very tense um usually we're not at odds luckily but it's just just joy like and I just wish I could do it more and this is not when I first started doing this again I feel like I'm talking a lot about Jeremy but it was a very transformational you know creative relationship in my life when I first started the soundtrack in my head was oh is this the right time oh oh what's the song oh gosh um oh is that person leaving because they think I suck like oh you know and just trying to dive back into the moment but just having this like this anxiety soundtrack and it's kind of like learning to meditate you need to learn to 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 like let those thoughts kind of trickle past and not take over um, so you can be in the moment. So that's what I'm always kind of aiming for is like, I'm not trying to think about what's coming next and I better nail it. Um, And I find that like, I just, I just did this recently where I was like a a piece that we were playing was a little bit uh, not fresh in my memory because we haven't played much together during the pandemic. So there was something that we hadn't played together in a long time. And in true, like, us fashion, we didn't rehearse it at all and then played it. Um, But I got to a bit, I mean, I've played it many, many times, but I got to a bit where I was like, I know exactly what the line is, but I overthought it. And then I got, like, jumbled in my fingers. Like, I can't be going like, ah, what's coming? Ooh, am I going to get it? I'm going to mess it up. Because then I just lose, like, I'm not in the flow, you know? So I was like, oh, that was a strange mistake. Like, I've played this a thousand times. That's a weird thing about music is the more you think about it the the worse you play i find <laughs> like yeah and i don't know when i'm on stage with my band um i'm often listening to what they're doing yeah because in rehearsal i have to do it like i'm listening and saying okay well, we don't do that there mm-hmm. it comes on later in the song mm-hmm. and so you're analyzing everyone else's parts and you have to be you're doing your own thing at the same time while you're critiquing three different performances. <laughs> and when I'm playing shows, I try not to do that at yeah, all, but just let go. sometimes it's, it's there because well, if you didn't play in a while or something, then you're just, you just have to, or you, yeah. you, you're, you're just not in your own zone. So you yeah. fall back into that. Yeah. But, and I mean, as far as improvising, like you need, the the best situation is when you've established a an improvising relationship with a person or people where 
you trust them a zillion percent. You know they're not going to drop the ball. They know what you're doing. You yeah. already know that they know what you're doing. You can hint at something and you know that they're right there with you. Yeah. Like the other day at the show, um, Jeremy played like a couple notes and I just dove in and in front of the audience, he was like, you know what I'm playing? And I was like, yeah, of course I know what you're playing. Like, you know, I don't, it's not really conscious anymore. It's like, oh yeah, like I know where we're going with this. And it's not only because I hear the notes, it's because I know the context and because I, I'm thinking the way that Jeremy's thinking. I'm like, I think he's going in this direction. So like, then he knows that he can change his mind in the middle of something and be like, I'm going to play it this way for the first time ever. Or I'm going to transition into a cover of a song that Blanche has never heard. And, you know, and then we're just going to keep going. And I might just, if I'm really lost, I might just ease out, back out, listen, mm -hmm. you know, and there's no problem with that. Um, Is that something you think you could only do with him because of your relationship and practice history? No, but with like great musicians who are um listening well yeah okay. um, you know so the the mix of like the skill and the agility but also the the sensibility mm -hmm. sensitivity it's i find it easy to tell how good a musician is when whatever you're at a party and they just pick up a guitar and they're playing along to your songs they don't know or something right and then you know as soon as you switch to a new part, they're going to keep playing the part they're on. Yeah. And a good musician, they don't know you're going to switch right away, but they'll catch it in a split second yeah. after and move with you. Yes. But most people who are just at a party picking up a guitar aren't going <laughs> to like, latch yeah, on to that. It. And then it just... <laughs> I One thing I actually hate a lot is when people who aren't good musicians start jamming along with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I just... That's when I say, okay, I'll just... Like, my original songs, you know? Like, because yeah. they go a certain way and I like... Right. I don't want to adjust to them. So at a party, I'll just, whatever, I'll just play a bunch of covers. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. What's great about the cello and any melodic instrument by that I mean an instrument that has one note at a time most of the time, is that um, you can, like when the chord changes and you're on the wrong note, you work. can contextualize the note into being the right note after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds That's all a, very a intentional. Of, yeah, it's, it's like, oh, that you thought that was a mistake, but now I'm going to like say these three other things that are going to make that, like, yeah. sorry, knocking the mic, um, that are going to make that uh, fine. <laughs> this is what I meant it's to like, do. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant to do. And that's like, yeah, I love it. What year did you move to Halifax? 2020. Oh. But I decided to move here and sign my lease before the pandemic. Okay. It wasn't a pandemic move, but it was a great place to land during the pandemic. Wow. I feel like we've just known you forever. I can't believe I know, it's only it's been crazy. a couple of years. When you said that when we met was when I was recording on... Uh, uh, Christy Lane Sinclair, I think. Yeah. Album. Um, that's like, I don't know, like a couple year and a half ago, ago or yeah. something. It's bizarre. Yeah, yeah, but we just all kind of became fast friends, I guess. Yeah. And I, I guess part of the reason I was asking as well is just you've hosted Mike and I, but you've you've managed to bring so many people together Aww. in a city that is new to you, and that seems so rare. When that, I yeah, I came here and like. 2018 or something 20, when was I here anyway uh, and I had 
a Christmas party at my Airbnb. <laughs> it was like, I don't know, this place is just... I have a, a friend uh, who says that like a, a city either welcomes you or rejects you. And like, you don't really get a choice in it. But I gravitated towards this place because I visited many times and I built like friendships quite naturally here. And it just felt like the right place to, to land. And so, um, I don't know. It is strange, isn't it's, it? It's a city I observe that has embraced you. Yes. Mm. But you too have cultivated this group of people that mm. you've opened your home to and we go and we share food and music and you set up a little painting table one day we were there and I just I remember feeling really grateful like I get to participate in mm, this so true big artist collective and because you're always like showing up to gems and being like okay cool let's yeah, I'll just <laughs> drink my bubbly over here yeah. and bob my head around but yeah. no fried I mean chicken. I always enjoy it it's yeah. yeah we show up with our bubbly and fried chicken every time but <laughs> it's uh I don't know I, I feel like you've become the real root and mm. heart of this network around you that we're lucky to be part wow. of and it's uh yeah you just don't see that often from someone who's just kind of showing up like i'm here and i have this to offer and you just welcome mm. you welcome everyone you create this inclusive space and i mean that shows in other areas of your life not just you know us hanging out on the weekends but it's a rare quality that you have in that way thank you yeah yeah like uh moving here one of my things was like, I want a dope apartment that I just love to be in and that I that has room to like host and um, like host people who are traveling to visit, but also just have get togethers. And in my mind, it was like we will have like a weekly show, like a weekly house show. But then it was the pandemic. So like maybe it's time to get that going. But mm, yeah. it's not a newborn baby. Um, but, uh, you know, like just just. Um, just bring that kind of energy to me on a regular basis. I'm from a, a big family and I'm used to being like surrounded, you know, being a group of eight all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I also have really taken to living alone. It's dope, but, uh, but my natural kind of default setting is, is having a lot of people around. Mm -hmm. We've also, talk to a fair amount of people on the podcast about the balance of being an artist that's either full-time or not. Mm -hmm. And those who are not pursuing art full-time often are working another job yeah. that kind of creates this financial stability is first and foremost. That's not to say they don't enjoy it, but I found that most of those people are working jobs not in the arts. Mm -hmm. So it's this real split um, often, and this was, you know, in my case, even while I was working that job, so different that in ways it created balance um, and you sort of appreciated a little bit of that difference between them. But your work is still, to some extent, aligned with the arts. Yeah. So do you feel like you're still getting that harmony between them or is it strengthening both perhaps yeah, they all kind of work together and sometimes I find it strange when I'm uh when I have my cellist hat on uh not to like meddle with everything else so my work is um you know I studied arts management I do a lot of grant writing I do consulting strategic planning um and then I also do translation it's just 
anyway, you know. I'm because a, you can. I'm a, and a how many French languages speaker do you who can speak? spell. Your um, first language is French, is that correct? Yeah. That's crazy, because you have a better vocabulary than most, <laughs> most English-speaking people. <laughs> and you also speak Spanish? I and... speak like seven languages, but mostly I speak yeah. English, French, Spanish, and then German, because I lived in Germany, but my German's kind of shoddy. Um what was the question before? Sorry, we've so, asked okay. you like seven more. But I, just so like... I was doing, like, I, 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 when I set out to go into arts management, I really loved it. I, and I mean, I still do. I like the reasoning behind art stuff and the big picture. And, um, you know, someone, someone um, that I work with referred to themselves as a, a cultural engineer as opposed to an arts manager or an arts administrator. And I really like that because it's like more about the role of culture in everything else. And um, so, I mean, I, I, it kind of feels like a weird term to, to just embrace out of nowhere, but I'm thinking about heading in that direction. Anyway, all this to say that like working with Jeremy has only helped um, me in that work because it um it 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 just like has branded me for lack of a better term as uh someone who you know is a a competent artist and musician and who like it uh, people can make a lot of um it can deduce a lot about me as an artist by knowing that I work with Jeremy um, they know that I understand how like production works and, you know, that, that I, uh, that I understand, uh, a lot and continue to learn more about, uh, working with indigenous people and, um, doing so in respectful and positive and useful ways. Um, so yeah, I it, like the the fact of the matter is it's like a halo effect that it has had on all of my other work because it's like oh you work with him you must be trustworthy you must be a good person you must be uh like competent I don't know so um yeah they work really well together and uh because of because of working with Jeremy I've gotten translation work and you know it's it, it and then because of grant writing I've gotten recording work and it all kind of uh builds on each other yeah it's this great web of opportunity I feel like being a uh, an entrepreneur the like most important skill is being able to put your hands up and go like work will come I'm not sure how but it's gonna work out and my parents are both entrepreneurs so I really leaned on them to start cultivating that that thinking but it's like and being a, a a freelance artist is the same it's just like I have zero guarantee that there's work coming and yet work always seems to come so I'm just not going to stress about that anymore well when you're you're putting yourself out there in so many different ways it seems like the the, the universe is going to let the mm. the right things happen. Yeah, I actually feel like there's no such thing as job stability anymore. Like employers are not loyal and employees are not loyal. Yeah. People bounce around in their careers a lot. And so 
the only real source of job stability in 2022, sorry to date the podcast, um, mm. is uh, is to diversify your assets in terms of like having different sources of income and a variety of clients um, so that you can't be fired and, and your mm. your life turned over. This was a great piece of advice that you offered me a few months ago when oh, yeah. I was making this choice was, yeah, talking about the changes in the economy and workforce and mm. the gig economy and so on and how betting on yourself essentially was the only remaining, <clears throat> excuse me, stable choice to make. And yeah. that really resonated in a way that I, I hadn't thought about it in that way. I hadn't heard it articulated in that way because often there's a lot of fear wrapped around not only entrepreneurship, but certainly artistic entrepreneurship. There's all these assumptions that come along with it. And yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence, not only to see you and a lot of successful business women that are in my network, thankfully, but just to think about it in like trusting yourself and trusting what will come to me and to you. And mm -hmm. so it's, I think it's important for people to have that positive outlook or reassured outlook about following their own path yeah. or their dream and I've just seen a lot of people lock themselves into a job that they hate or a relationship that they hate or a situation in life that they hate because they feel like it's it will be worse if they don't yeah but I've there's only ever been good things for me that have come out of um making space mm -hmm. and I still have trouble making space uh, with in work. It's hard to to not say yes to everything so that you can have space for the right things. But uh, but I it, it, like it's a lesson that I keep having to learn and relearn to just let it all let it, like like trust in <laughs> trust in the abundance of the universe and let it come. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask if you're someone who follows your intuition. Like, is that what guides you yeah. in business? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I I talked to someone who said, like, I don't know what it is to to follow your gut. Like, I don't know what, what does that mean? What does it feel like? And um, I think that a lot of my decision making comes from, like, just there's there's like a little naggy thing in the corner and sometimes it's so annoying it's like i just want to stay the course this is fine why am i why am i trying to like reinvent the wheel yet again but i just have the like little nagging corner voice that's like no you got to tweak this a little bit you got to go in this slightly different direction and and or or this massively different direction and i have that in in all aspects of my life <laughs> but uh but with work, I like that when I have that, um, when you're, when you're a freelancer, you have, you can like, you have the flexibility to shape shift your career always to follow where you're at and what you want to be working on. So you don't have to leave your job in order to change it and to, to evolve it. And just kind of start saying yes to more of these kinds of things and no to more of these kinds of things. And that's what I've done so far. And I'm just like, I, I need that kind of, I'm the kind of person that needs that kind of latitude to be able to stick with something 
And so I was always beating myself up about not being able to like stick with a, a job for more than a year or two before I was like over it and feeling like I had outgrown it. Um, and my own business has been the thing that I've, that has been able to like follow me in my, in my growth. The freedom of having your own business is the greatest thing. And we ourselves this summer, we, we were kind of looking at it like a few months back and just, we were working really hard, like put out, we put out a book. I put out two albums. Kristen just left her job. Like it kind of came to a peak of all this hard work. And we said like the summer, we wait all year to get these two months of good weather in Nova Scotia and like, let's just enjoy it. Yeah. So we were still working like a lot probably. Uh, Except that now you do it naked. Yeah, we do it in our uh, backyard when we pull our futon out and just lay in the sun and bring a computer, a notebook out, or a guitar, whatever we want to do. You were working on furniture in the sun yesterday, and it's just like we we said, we just want to enjoy the parts of the year that we look forward to all year. And even two days ago, I was just piling some wood and was planning to come in and do some writing and Chris and said, do you want to go to the beach? Like, sure, let's yeah. go. So I just <laughs> grabbed our pre-packed beach bag. I was covered in sweat and wood chips and we just went, I was wearing this exact outfit uh, <laughs> and uh, we, we went to the beach Yeah, and that's just the greatest thing about that freedom. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's a big thing we've not really allowed ourselves to have in the last little while. Yeah. Just cause we're, well, you guys, work extremely hard like I know a lot of artists and a lot of musicians that are like why aren't these things happening for me it's like because you're not working on them like I know I know people who do and they they make it happen you know um but also when you have a strong work ethic and you're an artist an artist sometimes like it can be hard to just you need to allow sometimes you can't just like uh push 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 all the time you do need that that space and taking a step back. And it is as Chris and I have talked about, like incongruous with a capitalist system a lot of the time. So there's a balance. And as an artist, you're going to do things that aren't, that are, that are more in on the side of like craftsmanship and like craft in terms of you're just creating to, in order to sell in order to, you know, uh, like artisan kind of stuff. And then you're going to do things that are really, you know, deeper in your creative practice and that's all um, fine. But yeah, like I, uh, the, the, the downside, but I don't really see it as a downside um, because I like this model for myself, but the downside is that you don't have like a safety net. So I, you know, took maternity leave on my own, dime and that's challenging it's like you know it's kind of the last thing you want to be worrying about when you're you're trying to trying to keep a small infant alive um but I feel like I just structure my my work in a different kind of way that that makes sense for me but I'm not taking a year or 18 months, I'm taking, you know, three months and then back to it. Uh, 
But you, I think about I'm thinking now a lot about it because it's like, well, I'm not going to necessarily need like childcare in the same way that someone who has to go to an office and do a nine to five needs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can I can ease into it and work two hours a day and that will be fine, you know. So so it's fine. It takes practice. I have found to redesign a life that looked one way for so long. And so there's this great desire and fulfillment in having that kind of freedom and control. I I love it, but it's still, I need to practice uh, the allowing, like you're saying, and driving to the beach at two o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny day. I don't feel guilty about it, but I'm just so used to, I guess, questioning what else I could be doing that was rooted in productivity. Yeah. And it's also a fear that if you uh, don't play by the rules, you will get in trouble. And that's just like things that are ingrained into us when we're children that like, you know, we need society needs rule breakers, you know, and it's not it's not always about like, and when you do play by the rules, it doesn't always work also. Yeah. So it's like, you should just do what you want. It's so true, though. It's about, yeah, like it's, the fear of breaking these rules that were these social norms yeah. and that were taught that yeah. th- if you follow this particular formula, this equals success. So if you deviate yeah. from that, then it will be your fault. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have this big, this big, fear all the time but it it makes its way into every little action and it's like i often have to tell myself like what is there is there any client that's waiting on me is there anyone that i'm disappointing is there any work that i haven't done no if i'm able to do it in an hour and it should have taken me eight then i'm going to the mall or whatever (laughs) like i'm gonna you know i'm gonna go and that's a good like, point, too, is like this is a task that may take some people several yeah. hours. Yeah. If you're efficient and practice and it takes you one, then yeah. you don't have to fill those extra three or four hours with something else. Yeah. And it's like there's no there's no uh, book that says that I need to work a certain amount of hours or certain hours in the day in order to be like a respectable human being. Mm-hmm. You know, they I. I there are days where I've started before 5 a.m. And there are days where I've just like pushed it off into the distance until it's supper time. And I'm like, wow, that was a re- that was really a write off. But I've also worked a nine to five. There's so much wasted time. One of the most valuable things that someone told me when I was just starting in the 40 hour work week was like a 40 hour work week builds in a lot of breaks. And if anyone is trying to tell you that you should be on all the time in a 40 hour work week, that's bullshit. You need like it builds in a lot of downtime and a lot of stupid shit like eating cake for someone's birthday like every mm. other day. And whatever. <laughs> I don't know that we're actually mentally capable of working no. productively for 40 hours a week. You know what? I wish I was. I think. Was it? Okay, I think it was an NPR podcast. I'm not going to... Yeah, anyways, talking about the 40-hour work week and that at this point, with the evolution of 
uh, productivity and, and, and machines and everything. We should really be at a 15 hour work week by now, mm. but at 40, it kind of stalled, um, because psychologically it felt wrong and not hardworking to do less, but it went from, you know, the standard amount of work went from like 60 plus hours down, 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 down with unions, et cetera, to the point where it got to 40 and, um, yeah, with the computers and like technology that we use in our day-to-day work, we're doing, oh my God, I just remember something. Okay, <laughs> I'm getting really into the weeds here, but I was, um, I was writing a grant and it defined a medium-sized business as, you know, 10 employees or something like that. And I, I said, oh, well, we don't have 10 employees. We have like four with this company that I was writing it for. And the people said, oh, well, that's fine. You know, that 10 people guideline is kind of old. And now businesses that have like four or five employees do the work of 10. And I was like, whoa, like that is bars right there. Like that is true. We're doing the work of two, three, four, 10 employees because we are doing it much faster. The education level is higher and we're using technology in, you know, like we don't have to like run down the street to like bring something to someone and like fax them documents and spend all kinds mm. of time doing that. Like everything is so rapid. There's really zero reason why we should be working 40 hours to do, you know, the work of, of so much less. It just, anyway, we've got being self-employed, especially as an artist. I think I've talked about this on here before. The hard thing is that there's no limit to what you can do. Like if I, if I didn't need sleep and just whatever, took a bunch of Adderall or something. Like <laughs> it I wouldn't could, be the first. <laughs> it could, there would be endless work. Mm-hmm. Like I could work for 24 hours a day for an entire year mm-hmm. and there's still be stuff you can do because there's always things that you can do to improve yourself, your business, yeah. what's, what your options are. Like I could just practice guitar or I could be reaching out to potential venues or there's just so many things you can do to improve or to 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 kind of follow the trajectory that you you re- you're trying to find so i think it's being able to set those limitations for yourself yeah and just trusting that you are enough as a person and that you don't need to be always firing on all cylinders in order to be valid mm. um and that's a lesson. That's another lesson I keep having to learn and relearn um, that there's nothing inherently evil in just doing less. It speaks to our conditioning because yeah. it's ironic to think that we've developed all this technology to, quote, make our lives more efficient and, you know, free up time. Mm. But we're just left feeling like, okay, well, I've completed this thing more quickly because of these tools I now have, which means I have to find more tasks to fill this remaining time that I'm taught is supposed to be spent in labor. It's, I don't know. We're getting there. And like you said, Blanche, things, the opportunities always seem to come. And that might be because we're putting ourselves out there. But I remember just last week we had... A number of bills all come on the same day where our insurance was due. The wood guy came and the mortgage payment came out like, oh, shit, that's a lot of money. And uh, then I was like, what a 
what have I gotten the go coming up? And I was looking at my schedule and like, uh, a few more gigs would be nice or something. And then that evening got an email about four random gigs. Wasn't expecting on mm. weekdays that mm-hmm. fit perfect into our schedule. Like we were going to be in these random places anyway, which is really strange. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. So it just seems to fall into place and maybe we're just lucky or maybe the hard work we're doing is just paying off because we're putting ourselves yes. out there. But I also then like underneath that, there's the safety net of, well, if I ever was desperate for work, which I haven't been in that situation in a really long time, there's like a hundred people I could reach out to that I work with, you know, semi-regularly. They could be like, is there anything going on? And then beneath that, there's the safety net of like, well, if I was really screwed, I could do like these 50 things to like save money or 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 make a little bit of money. And then beneath that, it's like, well, I could go busk on the street. Yeah. And then beneath that, it's like, well, I could go stay with my sister. And so like once you realize yeah. how many safety nets there are, you go, OK, there's really no use in worrying about this. I'm just going to worry about it when it when it happens. And other than that, I'm just going to like live my life. That's beautiful. Yeah. No, it's so refreshing. I, I'm glad that we had this chat about, because it's one thing to talk about entrepreneurship, but I think there's a lot of uh, state of mind that goes yeah. with that too. There's not just the having a great business plan and, you know, logo. It, it, it extends, I think, even more importantly into your mindful way of executing that business. So kind of, I guess, what this is really about. Yeah. and. Like, it's not for everybody. Not everyone's a natural entre- entrepreneur and being in the, the like, slowly living into this title of entrepreneur and then having people being like, wow, what's it like being an entrepreneur? I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years about, like, their business ideas. And sometimes I'm like, that's dope. You should do it. Like, you know, if I were you, I would do this, this and this. But there are a lot of people out there who are just dreaming and that is fine. Like, and that's fine for them. That's enough for them. It feeds them. Um, and they prefer not to to put it into action because of whatever. Um, you know, like wh- where they're at in their life, what they feel their skills are, what where their priorities are, fine. Um and but I like I know that I that if it were me, like over time, I've grown to uh, feel like I can count on myself. And that's a really fun thing about working for yourself is like you figure things out and then you're like, oh, I did that. I figured mm-hmm. that out. And you then get to own your wins um, in a way that you can't when you are that, you know, support type person that we were talking about before. Like you just completely own your wins and you're like, oh, I did that. Are you living the life that you dreamed of having or imagined like, you'd have? Yeah. I'm not someone who um, sets out like specific criteria of like, you know, I want to do this specific thing, live in this specific place, have this much money, like have these items. But it's more of how do I want to feel? And so I'm always going after that to like, the detriment of like logic, <laughs> you know, I just, I just go after things because I'm like, well, what's life if not, 
if not seeking the thing that that is right for you at the moment where it's right. I don't know. And so I feel like I ended up here in Halifax with this network that we talked about and playing music and with a baby in this like single parent situation, which actually to me is like kind of great, (laughs) right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's better than, than being in a bad partnership. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So anyway, all these things, it's kind of like that they're all right with my soul, you Mm -hmm. know, and I welcome whatever else is coming and I make decisions based on, on, on that. And I get myself out of really quite bad situations that I end up with in, um, by following my intuition and being like, okay, something's off, something's off, something's off, something's off until I'm, I've figured out what it is and then I change it. So yes, happy. So I'm, I'm guessing by that answer that you would say that you've made it. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I, if I, um, there's a lot of bucket list type things that I had that I've done. So that's cool. And like, there could be many more, but if, if I, 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 I feel for some reason, like I've been very impacted by hearing older people say, oh, I wish I would have had the courage to do this. And I wish I would have gone for it in this way, whatever. And that's for, for whatever reason, had a big impact on me that I'm like, I don't want my, my life to be reduced to that. I want to always take that, like make that hard decision, um, take that maybe difficult road that will not be so obvious and will be kind of like from an outside perspective, weird or nonsensical. And if it feels right to me, just go for it and not feel like I need to um, justify it to anyone but myself. And I feel like I'm getting better and better at doing that. And, uh, and so like the, the good that exists in my life and there's so much of it, I, I feel like, uh, it's not a coincidence. I'm sitting here just covered in goosebumps and smiling and <laughs> all the things I expected I would being able to spend this time with you, Blanche. You're just, you have this gorgeous energy. You have an intelligent perspective. You've brought something new to this podcast that we haven't talked about before. So thank you for your time and your grace and your beauty and talent. Thanks. I was really really looking forward to just sitting down and having this kind of a chat with you guys and um, thanks for having me on the on the old pod well it's always a pleasure to be in your presence and we've got a little recording to do coming up too some, okay. sometime in the future so does uh, she know about that oh. she, <laughs> she knows <laughs> playing it cool yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, Blanche, thanks so much. Uh, Let's do it again in uh, maybe a few months or something. Great. Thanks, guys. Cheers. To the beach.